Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Fear and the final episode of The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox where history intersects with horror, and where the rise of fascism feeds the birth of a dark, hungry god in Depression-era New York City. The end is nigh. After all the creepy, eerie, twisty turns this series has taken, Morgan Knox has paid for her fight against the order of the unknowable with her life. What happens next is anyone's guess, but we're about to find out. Next, we take you to the not-so-serene forest of Silverwood, California, where a monster from another dimension is desperate for the human blood it needs to return home. Welcome to the most terrifying trip of your lives, campers. Tune in next time for Silverwood. And for more shows like these, follow Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Realm.fm. You guys ready? Here we go. Two months after she got back from the war, Knox's parents sent her to an asylum. They meant well. Her old man was a vet himself, and when she'd told him about the things she saw, he listened intently. There was something transcendental about it. He was her namesake, after all, and here she was pouring her heart out to him. He'd understood. She was so sure he'd understood. He even held her that night as she cried. But he was worried, and he spoke to her mother, and together they decided they couldn't fix her. They picked a place on the up and up, a place that had actually turned out a couple of success stories, a place old man Morgan wouldn't have minded going himself. Regular meals and regular exercise, the verdant life of the island visible from every window, bird calls in the morning, and cookie at night. Just looking around the place, it was almost impossible to tell what it really was. Every morning, she and all the other veterans, there were so many, would sit in circles and talk about their experiences, what they saw, how they were feeling, that sort of thing. All the stories sounded familiar, but none of them were like hers. Not really. Not when it came down to it. The others heard mortars in their sleep. Knox got that with an extra helping of strange chance as she poured her morning coffee. Eyeballs for grounds and fingernails instead of clumps of sugar. 
the others never dealt with that. And no one wanted to hear about it either. But the instructor, she said when those things happened, you had to close your eyes and count to ten. You had to focus on the things around you. You had, she declared with serenity, to be present. Count to ten. Listen to whatever's going on. Think about it. Really think about it. And you'll be able to feel what's real and what isn't. It worked. Sometimes. The island sounds had some way of drowning out the others if she let them. It's kept working hundreds of miles away, in this land where the cold eats her fingers every winter, and the sea doesn't sound as it should. As simple as closing your eyes. In the end, it's always that simple. And that's the trouble. She's known all this time that all it takes is closing her eyes and being present one last time. It's always been so close. The absolute silence of a job well done. The relief of never having to see another boy's torn up innards. The weight leaving her as easily as her soul leaves her body. All this time, all she has ever had to do is close her eyes and count to ten. All this time, she's fought against it tooth and nail. Always more to do. Always more people to help. Always someone else who needed her attention. Always so much keeping her here. She ran through the lists every night, counted to ten every night, told herself, you have to keep fighting. You have to make this place better. She wants to laugh now, but she has no mouth. It feels good. It feels familiar. One. The whole world is laid out in front of her, like some shiny marble. And all the people within it are moving at once. It's hard to keep track of what it is she's seeing. Hard to steer it. A hundred faces. A thousand. A million. All they have in common are two pits for eyes and a grim slash for a mouth. Turns out, when you see humanity all at once, it becomes a monstrous creature. Maybe her priest had been right all along. Maybe they were bathed and birthed in sin. But she's always walked among the monsters, and in spite of everything, she feels at home. Sometimes the images stop long enough for her to get a good look. One moment, it's a mother and son, sitting on a curb somewhere, with a plate of scavenged scraps between them. The next, she's somewhere dark, with a wicked-looking vial of liquid in hand. Understand that neither of us were ever here, says the man across from her, and she thinks that he looks familiar, but she isn't sure why. Two. A blink. She's on a street somewhere in Europe. Her throat... She does not have a throat. Feels tight, and she wants, more than anything, to leave this place. Why is everyone staring at her? What are they thinking? All she wanted was to go to the store for some eggs. When did the eyes of her neighbors become daggers? Jabbed constantly into her back and her side and her shoulders. How long has she been bleeding? She should go. She's got family in the States. Maybe they'll help. But she knows, somehow, 
that they won't. Three. Blink. There's a storm headed straight for Jamaica. A swirl of angry white with an unblinking eye at the center. But this isn't hurricane season. She screams with her mouthless voice, but she knows that no one will hear. How many children will spend the coming night just as she had, huddled beneath a roof that creaked and groaned and yearned to fly? Suddenly she is with them as the storm hits, as their lives are uprooted and drowned beneath God's unyielding force. In the rain-drenched streets, wolves who are men who are wolves roam, tongues lolling out of their mouths. Blood is in the air. A boy huddles in the wreckage of a felled coconut tree, whispering prayers that may not save him. She's the only God around to hear them. Four. New York City is a beast. From high as the crow flies, she sees it. The skyscrapers turn to pillars of flesh, topped with miserable eyes. A seam of teeth and tongues opening across Central Park. Tentacles shooting up like weeds, bursting through the cemented sidewalks. Bleeding meat golems throwing cars at unlucky onlookers. This is her city, and it is not her city. Blink. The skyscrapers stand as man's testament to God's long dead. We were here, and mightier than you. Central Park is a square of impossible green in a city of steel and concrete. A temple to nature in the belly of the unnatural. Man has conquered this city. Man has tamed it. And yet, along the streets, there are weeds and flowers and trees growing wherever they can, beautiful as all the rebelling angels, boxers and old women, politicians and bodega guys alike shelter behind overturned cars as the world goes insane around them. A foxhole's a foxhole no matter where. She recognizes the prayers they speak and the desperation writ plain as the writing on Belshazzar's wall. You have been found wanting. Blink. She is on the banks of the Marne, thousands of miles away from home, cradling a boy as he takes his last breaths on foreign land. God, she thinks, is dead. Something else is besieging New York City. Something dark and awful. And yet, not new. For years, it's grown in the firing chambers of her lungs, crawling like a vine up her throat. An unknowable familiarity, burning vitriol and vitriolic fervor, cruel delight and delightful cruelty. How long has she nursed them? What is it that she's given birth to? Beautiful, isn't it? Clear and crisp as the waters back home, a familiar voice in a place like this. Is this a place? Unseats her. The world spins. She falls a little lower and asks herself if this is the lion's den. Five. There's a car careening up what might have once been Fifth Avenue. A tentacle springs up out of the ground, 
and a man leans out the side window, gun in hand. Three shots sink into graying flesh. The tentacle withers, like the tail of an upset cat, and crumbles atop the cracked cobblestones. The man gets in the car again, and it's only then that Knox realizes she knows that face, too. Young, clean-cut, with a winning smile, now turned to pale fear. Danny. A boy with a gun. Her formless body feels a stab of guilt seeing him. Once more, she has delivered him straight into the mouth of evil. Once more, she has led him to danger. Will he die like the others? In his final moments, will she hold him as he calls for his mother? This is the way things should be. Chaotic, dangerous, vile. Only the strongest will survive this culling. I'm sure I don't have to tell a woman of science about the theory of evolution, do I? Don't be ridiculous, says the sensible part of her. This isn't evolution. This isn't natural. This isn't right. And you can't cull people, no matter what lies the murderers tell you. Six. Maybe... Maybe it isn't so simple. The car. Follow the car. Pushed along by her will, she follows the cab. How had she missed it before? It's Abe's cab. She's been in it more times than she can count. How could she have forgotten? She can see him now, as she swings over to view the cab from the front. There he is, taking up an incredible amount of space. She's never seen him so grim. Never seen that look in his eyes. He's shouting something to the shapes moving in the back seat. But she cannot hear what. Can't hear anything over the crushing metal and cracking stones. The mortal screams and the chanting that fill the city. Danny sinking into the seat next to him, with his head clutched in his hands. The gun falls to the floor beneath him, and he sobs. So like a child. She's only seen him cry once before, when she told him that she'd found his best friend dead. Back then, she couldn't bring herself to give him the details, but they come back to her now. The ragtime man, as they called him, wasn't supernatural at all. He was just a man full of hate for others unlike him. Three bodies with their heads removed, Danny's friend among them. She hadn't told him. She knew the first time he came into her office, begging for her help, that he didn't have the stomach for all the grisly details. And tease him as she might, she'd always envied that about him. Imagine feeling things so strongly that death still surprises you. Imagine. Closer. A street lamp comes crashing down. In the flash of light that follows, she can see the back seat of the car with perfect clarity. Ellen Jacobs, hair plastered to her brow, grimacing as she stoops over something. Her hands are stretched out in front of her. Back in the trenches, she saw this expression all the time. The desperation writ in the lines of her face. The quiet pleas leaving her mouth. Do you think they have any hope?
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Seven. She's in the car with them, floating somewhere in the center of things. And she can see clearly now what Ellen's working on. It's a strange thing to look at your own body. She's never liked mirrors to begin with. They can't tell you, much you don't already know. But this is different. There she is, as pale as her dark skin is ever going to get, her shirt half open, as Ellen puts everything she's got into keeping her breathing. Morgan Knox's eyes are closed. She is smiling as she lies there in the back seat of Abe's cab, her hand grazing the floor. Was this what she looked like when she passed out drinking? No. Even on those darkest nights, she never looked this happy. And yet, the city burns. You have been found wanting. Ellen, please, starts Danny. I'm trying, she shouts back. All venom and vitriol and anger. You get like that when someone's dying on you. You get angry with them, angry with everyone, angry with the world that put them there. But it isn't the world that put them here, is it? Abe's voice is the rumble of thunder. Try harder. But why are they trying at all? Can't they see she wants to go? Bones groan, and so does Ellen. You're not fucking dying on me tonight, Morgan. A heavy thud. The roof of the cab caves in with a horrendous screech as a tentacle slaps against it. Abe curses. She expects him to make some joke about how much this will cost him, but he doesn't. Instead, when she looks over to him, he's got his fist cocked. His steering wheels changed into something like the squids she found on the shore as a child. Tentacles lined with mouths replace the struts. The center is a yawning pit. Abe socks it, then socks it again, and again, and again, never lifting his foot from the pedal. An awful squelching fills the cab, then a shriek. The wheels back to normal. The cab stops its careening. She has no eyes, but she blinks, and the cab goes dark. You can feel it as easily as I do, Miss Knox. Let's not pussyfoot around. Eight. A third floor office downtown. The smell of books and strong coffee. Outside, the keening sound of a concert violinist trying to earn a night's wages. Siverick. No. 
Demir Kamal Bey, sits in a regal armchair before her. She's certain that it's him, though the apparition before her is a blackened skeleton in a velvet smoking jacket. A skeleton should not be able to smile. And yet, this one does, as it gestures toward a tiny cup of Turkish espresso. A drink? A breeze comes in through the shattered windows, and she is aware, suddenly and violently, that she has a body here, that her spirit is trapped in flesh, that she is caged and bound and heavy. But she is still herself, and so she shakes her head. I'm finally about to get some rest. Why don't you fuck off and let me get to it? The skeleton chuckles. He crosses his legs at the knee, steepling his bony fingers. <laughs> Always so stubborn. This is the reason, of course, that the unknowable sticks to your ribs like moss to a pine. You have taken in the darkness of the world, and you have refused to bow to it. You understand, Miss Knox, that only the strong survive. You refuse weakness in all of its forms. That is why the two of us are here. A genocidal maniac's drawing room is not her idea of the afterlife. She can't have died just yet. There is a fear, distant, burrowing, that she is here because the unknowable still has its hold on her, that her soul is stained and unworthy, but she discards that thought. War is absurd. War is filthy. War is a lottery of death and destruction. A gentle creator, a good creator, would never allow it. She does not care if the dead have found her wanting. Miss Knox, Morgan, we're so close now, you and I, that I believe I can call you Morgan. You've seen what's happening to the world. I would wager strong money you'd like to save those friends of yours, wouldn't you? They don't need my help, she answers, but she can hear Danny's crying like she's still standing right next to him, and it hurts just to say the words. Every single one of them is tougher than you think. Me being there or not, that doesn't change how hard Ape can swing or dull Danny's mind. They have each other. You don't honestly believe that, the skeleton answers. I do, she says, because I understand what's going on. The unknowable's in my ribcage, all right, and with me hanging out here, I'm sure it'll start suffocating. Fire needs oxygen. The unknowable needs my life. Any second now, it's going to get snuffed out. Kaput. The best thing I can do for them is die. Just as she thinks that she wants a cigarette, she finds one between her fingers. She puts it to her lips and takes a showy drag before pinching the cherry out. There is some small delight, even here, that she's able to do such a thing without it hurting. She's always wanted to pull it off. The skeleton stares back at her. A leech crawls out from one of its eyes, leaving a glistening trail of darkness in its wake. He gestures broadly to the shattered glass window. The nighttime panorama flickers into twisting red and black, flesh and bone and teeth. 
Her heart throbs at the sight of it, as if trying to claw its way out of her spectral chest. Say what you will, Morgan, but I know the truth of you. You want a place to belong. You want power. You want to be able to save the lives of those you deem worthy, including your friends. And you want to live among them in peace. The answer is as simple as walking right through that doorway. Become one with the unknowable. Nurture it. Let it grow. And you will be a god among men. Yours will be the power of life and death. You will never grow old, and neither will your favored supplicants. All those injustices you've suffered, all the wrong you've seen in this world, will finally be yours to correct. This man who has committed such atrocities, this man who breathed murder and depravity, he sounds so like a false priest. There is no room in his heart for love or forgiveness. She thinks of a cold cup of Bacardi, and there it is against her palm. She takes a drink, savors it, really savors it. The spices prickling her tongue, the warmth of it against her throat, the bloom in her chest that follows. Three steps are all it takes to put her right by the squirming mass Bay's praising. He stands next to her, stroking his chin. Old habits die hard. Beautiful, isn't it? He says. Not today, Morgan, not today. World's most hard-headed broad. Don't go giving up that title. If you're being walled in, find yourself some dynamite. But even if it isn't today, this mass is still going to be here, lurking just beneath the surface of the city, the world. There are other people who understand it the way she does. Craddock, maybe some other survivors, but no one who's been so close to it. Epur si muove, as the saying goes, and yet it moves. She read up on the whole thing when she got the gun from Kresnik. Couple of centuries back, the church forced Galileo to recant his theory that the Earth revolved around the sun. Sitting in his cell, looking up at a sky that was not there, he uttered the phrase. She could see why Kresnik, a stubborn bastard, liked the story so much. And now, as she looks on this creation, it's all that she can think and yet it moves. Even if she dies in the back of Abe's cab, this thing will still be alive here, wherever here is, and it will still look for whatever entry it can find. If that thing's still kicking, then she'll have to keep kicking right back. If the city's still breathing, then so is she. If the waves still crash against the shores of the island, then she'll have to hang around to hear their song because she wants to, even if it's heavy, even if there are days she cries herself to sleep, even if she's got a golden opportunity here to leave it all behind, she doesn't want to. And there will be time for sleep later. All of it is moving, 
so will she. The words press against her palm, like the glass did, like the gristle and grime at the Marne, like the sand back home, like the comforting warmth of a lover. Kresnik was a paranoid guy, always said something was out to get him, always told her there was something more going on that she couldn't see. Maybe it was this, and maybe it wasn't. But the fact remains that his gun's the quickest shot in the East. No trigger guard and hardly any hammer to speak of. Nothing getting in the way. By the time Morgan puts it to Bay's bony temple and pulls the trigger, it's too late for him to react. Nine. He turns in sightless horror toward her. Leeches teeming out of his broken crown. You don't know me, Bay. You never did. She kicks him out the window. The writhing mass outside is too quick to welcome him home, swallowing him in a single gulp. It pushes off the window, whatever the window is. And for just a moment, she gets a glimpse at what lies beyond. It looks like the island. She reaches for it, but the floor gives out. She is falling, falling among the scattered shards of Bay's broken dreams. You owe me dinner. Please don't go. I can't lose you. That last voice. Ray? Yes, she sees him now as the city opens up beneath her. The car just ahead of the taxi. Of course he'd be leading the way. She closes her eyes. Ten. Morgan Knox jerks awake in the back of Abe's cab. The first thing she sees is Ellen craned above her. The first thing she hears is Danny's crying. The first thing she feels is a kind of agony she thought she left at the Marne. She can't sit up, but she smiles. Yeah, yeah, I heard you. You never get used to waking up in a hospital bed. Yes. Somehow, even though she's lived through the horrors of Eldritch Invasion, it is the hospital bed that bothers Morgan Knox as she wakes. There's a jolt of familiar fear, of worry. But that fades at the sight of everyone gathered around. Abe, half asleep, leaning against the wall by the door, like some kind of bouncer. Danny, curled up in the one good chair. Ray, pacing at the foot of the bed. And Ellen, once more craned over her, her fingers pressed to Knox's wrist. Maybe somebody's been using her head as a football. Maybe her ribs got beaten like a piñata. Maybe she's got some new scars she'll have to explain to her aunts. But she's here. And they're here, too. Must be some ungodly hour since Abe and Danny are asleep. Looks like Ray hasn't slept either, from what she can see of him. Morgan swallows. Her throat's dry, and she thinks of asking for some water. But Ellen's two steps ahead. Right before Knox's eyes, that handsome face goes soft and sweet, 
so much like it had years ago. Her eyes flick over to Morgan's. They share a smile as Ellen tips a paper cone of water to Morgan's lips. Two short sips, that's all she gets. But it's sweeter than fresh-squeezed juice, so far as Morgan's concerned. You gave us a real spook, Ellen says. It's quiet, but so is this particular corner of Bellevue. Ray stops pacing and turns. Is she awake? There he goes again. She manages to laugh, this time, as he walks over like a man possessed. She half expects him to shove Ellen aside, but he doesn't. He goes straight for holding her hand instead, cradling it. His hands are warm, as they've always been. That's the thing people don't know about Ray. He's a warm guy when he isn't on the job, singing in the kitchen while he makes her breakfast in bed, tucking her in before he goes to work every morning. He'd make a great husband for anyone who wasn't her. There's such concern written in the lines of his face now that she tries to reach out and comfort him, but her hand goes off the mark. He laughs and takes that one too. Morgan, are you okay? How are you feeling? Ellen tuts. Probably not all that great. She's got, come on, Doc, Morgan rasps. The line is, she's feeling swell. Ellen holds the paper cone like she's considering pouring some on Morgan's head, but even that comes with a wry smirk. Was that a joke? Are you telling jokes now? I've got to make sure I've got the right patient. She thinks of making a crack about how well they know each other, but with Ray right there, it's probably not a good idea. He's looking right at her, like maybe she does feel swell. He'd believe it if she said she did. Ray believed almost everything she ever told him. Except, well, he'll believe her now. Morgan Ramona Knox Alvarez, born April 5th, 1896. That's two last names, not two middle. Blood type two, it's type A now, Ellen says. Who decided that? A whole lot of doctors, yours included. I'm not sure how you managed to keep those types straight during the war. She wants to tell her that it wasn't easy. She wants to tell her that lots of people died. She wants to tell her that she saw it happen herself more than once, and she never wants to see it again. But for today, just for today, she won't say that sort of thing. Because better, clearer typing means that others won't suffer that way. And no matter what trauma Morgan's carrying with her, that's a good thing. We tried our best, Knox says. Hey, Ray. Who do you think is the better nurse? Me or Ellen? You. He answers automatically. That's because I'm not a nurse, Ellen says. She takes a familiar sleeve from a box near the bed and closes it around Knox's upper arm. Three pumps soon follow. Morgan, Ray says again. I was... I'm happy you're here. Really happy. I know, she says. I thought I had lost you, he says. Seeing those things, trying to swallow the city. I finally realized you'd been right the whole time. I kept thinking about all the nights you'd wake up screaming, dreaming of these things. And the thought of losing you just when I'd started to understand you. It was just like Ray to try his hardest and still get things a little wrong. 
but she forgives him. He's trying so hard, after all, and she'd never expect him to admit something like this. Thought you knew better than anyone how stubborn I can be, she says. There's a lot of things I want to see. I'm not going to give up just yet. I'm sorry. For everything. I should have believed you. Some other time, Ray, Morgan says. The sleeve winds as the air leaves it. Ellen jots down a couple of numbers. Looking good for a woman who died, she says. There's a short pause, and then... I should have believed you, too. Whole city probably believes me now, huh? Morgan answers. She isn't interested in haranguing either of them. With a grunt, she sits up. Ellen winces, but doesn't press the issue. What happened with the cult? It's like flicking a light switch in Ray's head. He goes right back to being a detective. Sets her hands back down at her sides, even though she's grateful for that. A little comfort's fine. But some things take time to get back to normal. Whatever normal is for them. We've taken all the survivors in and booked them. Questioning revealed the locations of two dozen more. We've gotten them, too. With the way the DA's feeling about all that chaos, we won't be seeing any of them for a long, long time. Nux gestures for the paper cup again. Ellen hands it over. You got Klein and Leclerc? Ray's jaw works. No. Any leads? No. You have no idea where they've gone? None whatsoever. Knox looks into her now-empty cup. Always a mystery, isn't there? But they could wait for now. We'll get them, she says. It's the best she can do to soothe Ray right now. Ellen's got out a pen light, and she's leaning into Knox's field of view. Neither of them has to talk about what's going on at this point. Stare straight ahead. Let the woman check your pupils. You should wake the others, Knox says. Ray nods. He turns, and taking a deep breath, projects with all he's got. Morgan's always liked his voice. Look sharp, guys. The lady's up. Abe tries to hide his little nap by snapping to attention now, but his face lights up when he sees Morgan staring back at him. He moseys right on over to squeeze her shoulder. Even Ellen's glare doesn't stop him. Danny's going to take a little more time to wake up. He's stirring only barely in his seat. Good to see you up, kiddo, Abe says. Really gave those guys a one-two, didn't you? I tell you, I never doubted you. Not for a minute. She can't help but smile. Yeah, yeah. Just couldn't break Mrs. Moskowitz's heart, you know? She was real worried. Sent over some soup for you and everything. He points to Knox's bedside table. Flowers festoon the thing like it's the maiden voyage of some cruise liner. How well do tables do at sea? Well, there's a thermos weighing it down, too. Presumably filled with Mrs. Moskowitz's prized matzo ball soup. A paper, too, from the looks of it with a note in Shiwan's annoyingly perfect handwriting attached. Near the corner, perilously balanced, is a postcard. The Eiffel Tower stands proud above the Arc de Triomphe. Knox saw dozens of cards just like this, tucked into the jacket pockets of soldiers. Her curiosity gets the better of her. She flips the card over, 
She's safe now. Thank you. See. Beneath is a small drawing of a woman in a fedora and trench coat. She's waving around a small pistol. Ringlets stick out beneath the brim of the hat, and her skin is haphazardly colored brown. As far as childhood art's concerned, it's no masterpiece. But Knox has never seen herself rendered in crayon before. Maybe she'll keep this one in her jacket, too. But as she picks it up, Abe frowns. Don't tell me. You want that more than you want fresh soup. I don't know if my stomach can handle soup right now, Morgan answers. She smiles at him. I promise I'll get to it. If you don't, she'll be so torn up, Morgan. I'll even come over for Shabbos. Abe stares at her as if she's grown a second head. Really? Really. Even Ray's looking at her funny. Morgan shrugs. It just feels like the right thing to do. How long's it been since she went over, anyway? Well, I'll be damned, Abe says. You're on. Don't forget, you owe me dinner, too, Ellen says. A sleepy Danny grumbles. <gasps> dinner? Morgan laughs. Poor Ray's decided to take the opportunity to go for a walk, huh? He's already grabbing his coat. Well, she can make dinner plans with him some other time. Wherever you want, Danny, Morgan calls. It's this that seems to fully wake him. His eyes land on hers and he smiles, leaning forward in his chair. She worries he might topple over. Tiredness will do that sometimes. Morgan? One and only, she answers. In the flesh. He rubs at his eyes. Oh, thank goodness. I thought you were... Everyone thought that. Except maybe Abe. Maybe. I couldn't miss Franklin's next show. But you said you were too busy, Danny begins. Tears bite at his eyes, and his voice goes a little pinched. Poor kid. I'll clear some time. Take a vacation, maybe. Think I've earned a couple of days off. You mean it? I do. Ellen whistles. If you weren't sitting here in front of me, I'd say you were someone doing a really bad impression of Morgan Knox. Maybe I was doing a bad impression this whole time, Morgan says. That's what it feels like, anyway. There's a lot of stuff I've been putting off. A lot of stuff I thought I couldn't let myself enjoy. There's a small silence in the room then, filled with the sounds of the city. She listens to them with a new reverence. That's where she wants to be. Out in everything. It'll have to wait, of course, until the others are gone. But she doesn't mind waiting. Doesn't mind talking with them. Doesn't mind spending the time in their company. Once the conversations get going, it's like they aren't in a hospital at all. They're in a bar somewhere with the smoke in their eyes and music in their ears, shooting the shit like they always do. All that's missing is the clack of pool balls running into one another. Dakota. Knox tries to push that dame out of her thoughts, but it's tough doing. Ellen says it's Friday. No better place to be than Santi's on a Friday night. She's got to be there, right? It's easy for Knox to keep the conversation going, but the others are too tired to do it for very long. Abe's the first to excuse himself. 
His wife's worried about him, and he needs to get home. He insists on driving Danny, too, and the two of them leave arm in arm. Ray doesn't leave of his own accord. He gets a call on the hospital line about a murder down in the village he's got to look at. He tries to kiss her on the forehead, and she allows it, just this once. After an hour of talking about the chest compression method she used to keep Morgan alive, the nurses come for Ellen, too. She's needed elsewhere. Her eyes linger on Morgan. Don't worry about me tonight, Morgan says. I'm safe and sound. It's enough to get Ellen to leave, even if Morgan knows she suspects something is up. Morgan waits a whole 20 minutes before getting up and gathering what she can from the hospital room. Danny was kind enough to bring her a change of clothes. She swaps into those, wincing as she puts her arms through the sleeves and thinks to herself that she should probably give him a raise. The postcard goes in her jacket pocket, along with Jiwan's article on the cult, and she tucks the thermos under her arm. The very picture of a woman who has her life together and can leave under her own recognizance. It isn't her first time doing this sort of thing. Given the kind of life she lives, it probably won't be the last either. But she's all right with that. Wouldn't have it any other way. But when she leaves the room, she almost drops her thermos. Because Dakota's standing right outside, in the sort of outfit that would make a priest fling his collar right to the ground. She looks like a million bucks in that emerald number. Knox feels a little shabby in comparison, but also like she's taken a sip straight from the fountain of youth the colonizers swore was somewhere back on the island. Who knew it was right here in New York? Knox hasn't felt this energetic in years. Dakota's got her back turned to the door, though. She hasn't realized Knox is out and about yet. Instead, she's struggling with a lighter, cursing just barely under her breath. The fur coat she's wearing sways a little with her movements. As Knox comes up behind her, always tailgating a nurse or an orderly, some fella comes up, asking if Dakota needs any help with that. Put-together guy, too. His hair's almost as slick as his freshly shined shoes. That's when Knox strikes. I've got this one, Chief, she says. She casually wraps an arm around Dakota's waist from behind. A different kind of electric thrill runs through Knox as they touch. And again as Dakota looks to her. Those eyes. A woman could sign away her house just to get a kind look from them. And here Dakota is, giving Morgan warm looks for free. No luckier woman in the world, is there? Morgan, Dakota says. It comes out, soft as a prayer, soft as a wish. With this guy hanging around, she can't do what she really wants, sweep Dakota into a kiss. So she settles for a wink. Morgan flicks open her lighter and holds it to Dakota's cigarette. Hope I didn't keep you waiting too long. She laughs, and it's sweeter than any tune Morgan's ever heard. <laughs> you could have waited another ten minutes. I had a whole song and dance set up. The slick fella's cut his losses and taken his seat again. Morgan can't bring herself to feel bad for him. A whole song and dance? Well, there's time if you want. Room's right over there. You could serenade me. You in the mood for serenading? Dakota answers. Her eyes narrow. 
I heard you were in a bad way. That's because I didn't have you hanging around. I'm feeling peachy now. Morgan. It's hard to convey what it feels like to escape death. Everything feels lighter now on some level, but it doesn't feel the same for the others. She knows. And Dakota deserves a better explanation after Morgan's stunt at Santee's. Morgan starts guiding her down the stairs. Dakota's frowning a little, but follows along. That's the thing about her. She doesn't press. There's this trust with the two of them. Down the stairs they go, the door shutting behind them. Knox leans on her as they go down the first flight. No questions, no big deal. Just the help she needs, but never wants to ask for. Easy as breathing. So, naturally, the second Knox is sure they've got no one on their tail, she pulls Dakota closer. In the half-shadow of the stairwell, Dakota's eyes shine like polished stone. Her breath is warm on Knox's skin, and she is soft. So much softer than the cement walls, or the metal railings, or the steel behemoths of the city. I'm sorry about that stunt I pulled. I'm sorry I made you worry. I wasn't thinking right, but Dakota kisses her. It's the kind of kiss people write songs about. The kind of kiss that takes Knox right out of her body for the second time that week. Dakota pulls her close, close, as if she's afraid that Knox will drift. And Knox in turn clings to her because she never wants to consider that she might. Because this, this feels like living. When they break, they keep their hands joined, desperate to continue that closeness as best they can in a world like this. Dakota's perfect lipstick is a wreck, and Knox's face isn't much better. Dakota laughs. <laughs> See, that's what you get, she says. She pulls off one of her gloves and starts dabbing away at the smeared lipstick. That's not exactly discouraging. How about... If you make me feel that way one more time, I'll never kiss you again. That? That's discouraging, Morgan says. She smiles beneath Dakota's ministrations and then offers her an arm. Together, they walk down to the front desk. Dakota stands chastely nearby as Morgan explains that she's fine, thank you, and she'll be checking herself out now. The girl at the counter doesn't give her much trouble. Morgan offers Dakota her arm again the second they're through the door. Outside, the wind's howling something fierce. The city's lament for the fallen. Even the night sky looks like the shaggy coat of a great predator. But Knox knows it's contained. For now. She doesn't have to worry about it tonight. You know, I was going to go down to the bar and find you. Imagine my surprise when you're right there outside my room. Like an early birthday present, Morgan says. Is that some ruddiness she detects around Dakota's cheeks? Yeah, well, I couldn't just let you wake up to those fellas. You keep real odd company, you know that? You've been coming every day, Morgan asks. Maybe, Dakota answers. She drops her eyes. I was worried. The way you left... I kept thinking about what I was going to say when you woke up. 
And then there you were. And it felt like I didn't have to say anything. Yeah, I know what you mean, Morgan says. She lets the comment lie for a while. Let's the howling and the newsies' shouts fill the air. She's walking downtown with one of her best friends. And maybe more. It's a good night. The two of them. They deserve good nights. For a mile or so, they stroll. The conversation starts back up eventually. Simple things. Updates on all their usual drinking buddies. But eventually, the moment comes as they approach the bridge. What? Was it like? Morgan knows, instinctively, that Dakota's talking about death. She thinks of lying to her and saying that it was miserable. But that isn't who they are anymore. Pretty good, honestly. I got to see the whole world at once. Like the best sleep I'd ever gotten. Dakota nods. Her eyes go a little distant. Knock swallows. I want to be honest with you. If we're going to do this, I mean, we should be honest with each other. So I'm not going to tell you I have any regrets about what I did. But I think I needed to do it to understand some of the other stuff. Like? Dakota asks. Like, how much I like being here. Or helping people. Like, how much I want to see. And how much I care about... People. People. People, Morgan repeats. A smile breaks out across Dakota's face, although it isn't without its frustrations. She sighs. I meant what I said earlier. I don't know if I can stand that kind of worry again. I live a pretty dangerous life, Knox says. I can't promise that's going to change long term. But I figure I might as well take a little time off. And you know, you've worried me a few times, too. Dakota's brows rise. You worried about me. Yeah, why wouldn't I? Morgan says. It's such a simple thing. Such a simple thing. And yet, it hangs in the air, like three heavier words might. Dakota takes Knox's arm again. I'll tell you about myself, if you want, Dakota says. A newspaper blows against Knox's leg. She mutters a curse as she paws at the meddling thing, but the headline stands out to her. Friday, March 24th, 1933. Hitler cabinet gets power to rule as a dictatorship. Her stomach sinks. The world never needed any help going mad. Fight against the supernatural all you want. There's always mundane evil. And mundane evil was what put her in those trenches. E pur si muove. But she isn't there now. And she isn't alone. Morgan, Dakota asks, Was that too much? No, no, she answers. Morgan tosses the paper into the breeze. On your own time. We've got no rush. I was thinking you could use a vacation too. The two of us. Maybe somewhere down south? Dakota squeezes her arm. Yeah. 
somewhere down south. You're listening to Fear, The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox is a Realm Original production. Written by Kay Arsenault Rivera, Brooke Bolander, Gabino Iglesias, and Sunny Moraine. Performed by Pilar Uribe. Produced by Marco Palmieri. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Audio production, editing, sound design, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Fear is produced by Mary Osadolihi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolihi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.